so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the weekly tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Trevin Wax, who's the Vice President of Research and Resource Development at the North American Mission Board, and he also serves as a guide to the newly re-released version of G.K. Chesterton's classic work, Orthodoxy. Today, we talk about G.K. Chesterton and defending the Christian faith. In addition to his role at the North American Mission Board, Trevin also serves as a visiting professor at Wheaton College. He's a former missionary to Romania and is a regular columnist at the Gospel Coalition and has contributed to the Washington Post, Religion News Service, World, and Christianity Today. He also served as the general editor for the Gospel Project at Lifeway. He's the author of multiple books, including The Multidirectional Leader, Rethink Yourself, This Is Our Time, and Gospel-Centered Teaching. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Trevin, I'm really glad to have you here on the podcast today. Last time we had you on the podcast, we were talking a little bit about your recent book, Rethink Yourself, The Power of Looking Up Before Looking In, which focused on the rise of expressive individualism throughout our society and how that in many ways is shaping the way even the church views ourselves and the world around us. But as we get started, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, your background. What got you on this path? Obviously, you do a lot of writing, you're a church leader, and then you have this new role with the North American Mission Board. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of your journey, your path to get where you are, and a little bit about what you do at NAM? Sure. So uh, when I was a teenager, I got involved in um, mission work overseas. I did a lot of mission work in Romania as a teenager, went on several trips, and then wound up becoming a a student at a Christian university in Romania for several years. That's where I met my wife. That's where we had our first son. So that season was was really a strong season of learning for me because it helped me to be able to come back when when we did move back to the United States. You know, you just if you've been outside of the country for a long time, when you come back in, you you see things differently. You have that kind of cross cultural experience helps. And so, as someone who felt the 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 pull into you know ministry of various kinds, um, I, I served on staff at a at a local church. I uh, devoted more than 10 years uh, to working at Lifeway, doing curriculum uh, and doing, uh, I helped oversee the, the launch of the Christian Standard Bible at Translation a few years ago. But all the, all the while have been writing 
consistently. I've I've seen myself as as a writer from the time I was uh, as from the time I was really young, and have have really seen that as a, a craft that I want to hone. And along the way, when you write a lot, you also encounter great writers. And so one of the things that's been great for me uh, just recently, having moved over to the North American Mission Board, uh, has been able to help develop their resources for church planters, for evangelism, for a disaster relief, a lot of the great things that that uh, the North American Mission Board is already involved in. Uh, but it also allows me to continue to, to have the freedom to, to read and to write and to speak to cultural issues. And um, uh, one of those writers that has certainly made an impact of me uh, on me, I would, um, I could even use uh, the 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 line that C.S. Lewis said about G.K. Chesterton. He said, I, "I don't know what it was about him that made such a conquest of me, but he did." And I feel like uh, Chesterton was that way for me as well. Um, and so, the last you know twelve years or so, I've I've read pretty consistently uh, from Chesterton, and um, uh, it's 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 one of the the things that's brought me to the interest in this in this new book, this new version of, of his classic book, Orthodoxy. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate about you is you are one of the most sharp, concise thinkers. Um, I, I really think of our day in many ways because you are speaking to such diverse set of issues and you do so with such a gospel-centered mindset and such clarity. And so I just, I really appreciate you in general and all of your work. And this volume is really, it's if listeners haven't seen it yet, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, it's this green cover with this kind of gold foil on it. It's really, really well done. It's from BH Academic. And as you said, I mean, obviously Chesterton's had a large influence, kind of uh, impact on your life and countless lives since his time. I think for a lot of listeners, they may be familiar with the name G.K. Chesterton, but they're not very familiar with who he actually was. Maybe they know about this work or some of his other work or have heard his name kind of thrown out. So as we get going, can you tell us a little bit about Chesterton, about his life and why Christians should study kind of this older figure, not just in Christian apologetics, but really throughout all of his work? Sure. You know, Chesterton, it's always fun to talk about Chesterton because he's just, he's a fun individual to to try to, it, it's hard to get your arms around him in part because he's such a large individual. Uh, this was a very big man. He's very tall, is uh, very heavy, uh, was uh, uh, very absent-minded as well. I mean, he would, you know, arrive late to events and then arrive in other parts of the the city. And would, would, he may have actually, some think that he may have had some sort of a even a, a disability that in in some ways that kept him from from being quite as socially adept as most people would be, but that led to really a a, a real a brilliance in in um, a lot of what he wrote and what he thought. The the thing that a lot of people have probably heard about Chesterton or they've heard that name, G.K. Chesterton, they've probably seen one of his quotes. He's one of the most quotable people. I mean, just has some terrific one-liners that are out there, and some that are attributed to him that are not necessarily exactly what he said, but that's be, but they're the kinds of things he would have said. Um, and so he gets all sorts of um, um, accolades, I think, for for his quotes. But as far as what his life was like, he was predominantly a writer and an editor. And his he he would have said if you asked him what are you, he would have said he's a journalist. He's not he's not a theologian, so you don't really go to Chesterton for theology, so to speak. I mean, there's certainly theology in his work, but um, he, he's not a theologian first and foremost. And so even where you're going to have disagreements with him on, theologically, that's that's not really where the value is. He would see himself as a journalist. And 
over the decades that he he wrote, really beginning about 1900 until his death in 1936, he wrote thousands of essays that went in different newspapers and different publications. He oversaw the uh, a, a weekly newspaper uh, in which he contributed to, in which he also edited. But then he's he's famous for the Father Brown detective series. You know, there's a the television show even now still ongoing with uh, Father Brown that's based on that character. I would say very loosely based on that character, but still, uh, he he did detective novels. Um, he he did a number of different kinds of novels. He wrote plays. Uh, he did poetry, the Ballad of the White Horse, Lepanto, are, are very famous poems that he did. Where Christians are most likely today to encounter him, at least at first, before they delve into some of his other work, is probably his um, apologetics work. He wrote several books that are in that apologetics vein of um, defending the faith, explicating the Christian faith, trying to help people understand the the whys and the hows and the the what's of the Christian faith. So he has a book called Heretics that does that. And then he has Orthodoxy, which is the follow-up and the perhaps his most famous work. But then The Everlasting Man, which came years and years later, um, that C.S. Lewis said is the best popular apologetic that he knew of at the time. And he says that in a letter to someone. So, you know, it's it's hard to narrow down Chesterton to one exact genre because he's he's just so prolific, wrote millions and millions of words. You know, I've I, I set the goal a few years ago of reading through all of Chesterton's works and realized that's going to be a lifetime uh, goal. <laughs> not, that's not going to be something I finish in a few years, and that's partly because of just how how prolific he was. And so he died in um, 1936. Other, you know, interesting things about his life: he was um, married to um, uh, Francis, his wife, for. For decades, and uh, um, they were never able to have any children. That was a source of heartache and sorrow for them. Uh, Chesterton uh, lost his brother at the very end of World War One. That's another thing. And he was a very famous convert to the Catholic Church in 1922. So he wrote Orthodoxy uh, in 1908, and then it was, you know, it's it's not a book that's really about the differences between denominations. But uh, he he became a convert to Catholicism in 1922, and he was a Catholic until he died in 1936. Yeah, I know you've spoken to it. You mentioned names like C.S. Lewis and others who you do this, especially in the introduction, um, who were influenced by or shaped by Chesterton. Who are some of those people uh, that we see kind of this influence of Chesterton in their lives or in their works? Um, and then can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the connection between Lewis and Chesterton themselves? Sure. I mean, I I think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people that spoke highly of Chesterton. One, I mean, Mahatma Gandhi was translating Chesterton's essays. Chesterton, through Gandhi, also helped to liberate India from, from British rule at the time. So you have that. Um, you've got just um, among evangelicals, you have people like John Piper, who you'd think, well, what is John Piper doing? You know, Chesterton was famously anti-Calvinist or anti-Puritan in a lot of his writings, um, or at least in a lot of what he said about those subjects. And yet, um, I believe, and I can't remember exactly where I saw Piper say this or write this, but John Piper hardly ever reads a, a book twice. Uh, he's a slow reader. But he said at the end of Orthodoxy, when he got to the very last page and he finished it, he just turned the book over and started right back from the beginning and read the entire book through again because he, of, of just how, I'd say, if, if you could sum up a lot of his Chesterton's um, appeal, it's he's got this sacred intoxication at the thought of existence, gratitude for existence that is is mind shaping and soul forming. So uh, 
a lot of people, whether they agree with Chesterton theologically on a number of issues or even on some of his stances politically, um, find his wonder at the world and at the basics and the core essentials of the Christian faith as, as being very appealing. And so Lewis Lewis talked about Chesterton quite a bit in Surprised by Joy, actually, that his, his sort of memoir autobiography talks about Chesterton in a couple of places there and just how how much Chesterton's humor was instrumental. And then also he talks about Chesterton as playing an instrumental role in, in as one of the instrumental roles in bringing him to the Christian faith. There was, um, there was something so um, attractive and appealing and compelling about the way that Chesterton went about his work. And so I find that to be fascinating. And in fact, the more I've read Lewis now, the more I've read Chesterton, I should say, when I go back and I read Lewis, I see the Chestertonian uh, influence all over the place. And I mean, there, there are times I just recently, I reread Mere Christianity again and I, you know, I was marking and I like putting out in the, the column, oh, he got that from Chesterton. Oh, he got this from Chesterton. He got, so I've, I've jokingly said that when I get to heaven um, and I, I meet C.S. Lewis, I want to, um, I, I think what I will say is thank you for Narnia, but then I will say thank you for introducing me to Chesterton because really, for me, Lewis is the one who pointed me back to Gilbert Keith Chesterton, and that's that's where I um, have have really enjoyed the most uh, of the the sojourn, I would say, in his writings. Yeah, one of the things that I love about this type of book, having these kind of introductions. So I use a book in one of my classes, How Not to Be Secular by James K.A. Smith, introducing students to Charles Taylor. Now, that's a little bit of a different book because Smith is kind of walking through, and it's an entire book about a book, um, is like what he likes to say in the introduction. This is a little different. Obviously, you're presenting the text of orthodoxy. You're giving notes along the way to aid readers. But I think sometimes when especially kind of modern-day Christians go to some of these older works, they're hard. Uh, they're not something that's super easy. It's not kind of a breeze through. You're not skimming these books. You really have to hang on every word and every phrase. And so uh, that's one of the things I like about these type of volumes is having these introductions, having kind of questions along the way, key themes. But one of the things that I always encourage my students, especially when they're reading harder books, um, and kind of pushing them and saying, look, you can do it. It's going to take time. It's going to be hard. You're going to feel defeated at times, but just keep going, kind of pushing through it. One of the things I always do is not only kind of understanding who the author is, but also some of the context in which they inhabit. I think understanding someone's cultural context, the big questions of their day, um, helps us to navigate some of these things because they're not writing these things in a vacuum. Obviously, they're writing it in the midst of their own cultural pressures, their own questions that they're they're wrestling with, and kind of the even technological developments of the day that can be a little overwhelming to them. Um, I know I've seen that with Bavink. I've seen that with others. Is kind of understanding the context helps you to understand the work a little bit better. Um, so, can you speak to that with Chesterton? Kind of as you talked about, kind of with the turn of the the twentieth century. There, um, what are some of the cultural, kind of historical things going on around him that are informing or kind of uh, pushing him to write something like this? Yeah. So, Chesterton, you know, out of all of the things that I mentioned before that Chesterton's known for, I probably forgot the most important thing that he was known for at the time. What really put Chesterton on the map was his literary criticism, which, you know, I mentioned journalism and all the other things. It was his literary criticism. You know, he did a an appreciation at a book about Charles Dickens that really, a lot of people say, rehabilitated and 
set up Dickens to be the force of nature that Dickens is even now in the, the 20th century and even into the 21st century. He sort of, Dickens had fallen out of favor, so to speak, and Chesterton, his work led to a revival of that. He also, Chesterton wound up coming back to, you know, the, the, the Christian faith after a period of profound despair and depression in the, in the 1890s in which, you know, there was this nihilistic philosophy of, you know, there's nothing good in existence. I mean, suicide is as good as life and things like that. And he, he, he looked into that dark well and came out of that saying, no, I'm going to start with the basics. The basics is that life is better than non-life. And on that began to build this structure for how to understand the world, like what actually makes sense of the world. And he he had a, a series of very public debates with an, an atheist named Robert Blatchford at the time that were serialized in, in the newspapers. And then he wrote the book called Heretics, which is not a book about ancient Christian heretics, you know, like um, Arius versus Athanasius. So, you know, like it's not about famous heretics from, from Christian history. It's about the contemporary writers of his time and he's basically showing up all of the the defects in their thought processes. Well, someone responded to that book and said, okay, so Chesterton's going after all of these contemporary writers. Well, we'll tell Chesterton what, you know, we'll answer to Chesterton about what we think whenever he tells us what he thinks, what his philosophy of life is. And that's what led him to write Orthodoxy, which was about, he, he calls it a slovenly autobiography. Basically, it's this, it's this. It's his journey to the Christian faith as a series of mental pictures that he's putting one on top of the other. And so it doesn't go about like, you know, it's not him telling his life story or anything like that. It's 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 really unique in that way. It's a really hard book to read because, in, number one, because he's, you know, it's 1908. He's referring to all sorts of people, both his contemporaries and people in the past and events in the past that unless you are really well versed in like European history, European architecture, European literature, you're you're not going to know all of this stuff. So some of the references are really obscure. They're hard to to follow his train of thought because of the the distance that that we have. And I remember I read I've probably read Orthodoxy, you know, 10 times now. And I think the first time I read it I just remember finishing it thinking, okay, I didn't understand half of that, but goodness, there were some amazing sentences here and there. Like I was, it's like I was in this field where I had completely lost my way, didn't know where we were going, but I was finding these gold nuggets all throughout the field. That's kind of how it felt the first time. And so for me, knowing that there's this historical distance between us and Chesterton, knowing that orthodoxy itself is a hard book to get into, especially it demands concentration, it demands focus. Um, I thought, what if I could help, now that I've read the book enough that I really understand the book, it's become a part of me, it's it's part of how I think. How about I, you know, go in and do some introductory materials at the beginning of each chapter to just sort of say, hey, here's what Chesterton's going to do in this chapter, here's some things to look for. Then annotate the book, not with commentary really, but more just like, hey, if he mentions someone, this is who that someone is. So that you can kind of follow along why he's talking about the people and things he's talking about. And then following up with some summaries at the end of each chapter to say, okay, here's where we've been. Here's what Chesterton has just done. In other words, let me give you the lay of the land. Let me break this up. Another thing, another thing. People in that time wrote with really long paragraphs, like sometimes one page, two page paragraphs, you know? And so I was like, I can break those up. I can add some headings here and there just 
to make the structure of the chapters a little bit easier to engage. And so that's been my goal with this project is to say, I know this is a hard book, but it's a great book, a classic book for a reason. And if we want to get more people into it, let's ease the path. Let's help the, let me be a guide. Let me be a guide to help someone walk through, through this book and to devote the attention to it that it deserves. Yeah. Well, I know you've broken the book up, so you've already mentioned some of the ways that you've aided readers, whether it was kind of breaking up some sentences. I love when you're saying, like, at first, when the first time someone's mentioned, I'll tell you who it is, and then I'm going to, you're kind of on your own. It's one of those things, you give kind of these hints and guides and annotations along the way. I found the introduction to be really helpful, especially the chapter summaries, because sometimes you read something, you're like, I have no idea what I just read. I liked some of it, but I don't totally know. And so having that's really helpful. And you mentioned some of these key themes. So obviously the book is broken up into nine chapters. Can you give us kind of this, the way or guide us through what is the structure of the book? And then some of the kind of overarching themes uh, that we should be aware of as we're reading. Right. So the first chapter kind of sets the stage. Basically, Chesterton says, hey, I'm going to tell you a story about a man who gets on a yacht and he's going to go and discover a new world. And he winds up sailing to sailing, sailing back and discovering his own home. He discovers the island he came from. He didn't discover the island he was going to. He discovered, he, he wound up back at home, but it was like he discovered it for the first time. Chesterton basically is saying, that's me. Here I set out to develop and to, to explain this philosophy of life, to invent basically this religion for myself that I thought would be my own personal heresy. And I discovered that it was orthodoxy. It already existed. It's like it's like discovering Christianity for the first time. So that kind of sets the stage for the rest of the book. So the first chapter is the shortest chapter. It's just basically the, the setup for the book. The, the next two chapters, um, The Maniac and The Suicide of Thought, are the two hardest chapters. If you can get through those two, then you can, you're going to persevere through the rest of the book. Most people that I know that that put orthodoxy down and just was like, I can't, I can't do it. I don't understand. It's they they get they get in into chapter two and three. Chapter two, the basic focus of that chapter is simply to say that we are we're living in a world in which the reality of sanity or the question of sanity is the is the main question that we must begin with. He's he's asking he's he's looking at the need for a sort of mysticism in the way that we look at the world, a sense of wonder and awe at the world, not the logical, rational, everything fits in a determinist's box. Because you remember, the people that Chesterton's dealing with at the time are hardcore determinists saying that humanity are just we're just animals. We don't have any free will, you know, and he's they go under the 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 rubric of free thinkers and Justin saying no they're actually not free at all they can't they there's no possibility for the supernatural so he he does that in the maniac um in the suicide of thought he he really jumps into a lot of the challenges that he sees in the contemporary thinking of his day which is that there is thought that then stops further thought and that thought is this this doubting of the self of reality in general. So that that's sort of the beginning part of the book. And it's the hardest part of the book because he's having to survey all of that literature. Then in chapter four, that's when things get fun. Uh, the Ethics of Elfland is one of the, the the greatest chapters in the English language. It is, I, I think I've, I've got a, uh, John Mark Reynolds did the Great Books Reader. I believe it's the Ethics of Elfland. That is the chapter that he has as, you know, readings from from great books throughout history. This is basically where Chesterton returns to the nursery and to the fairy stories and to the uh, the the instinct of astonishment that you see in these fairy stories and the the laws of the fairy tales and basically is saying 
these all point to the truth about what the world is actually like. Um, and so there are these parallels. You're you're under you're you're beginning to capture that wonder and sense of awe at the existence of the world um, there. So that's the the eth- ethics of Elfland. Next is really the flag of the world is really really where he really makes the the point that existence is better than non-existence, and that you've got to have a loyalty to the world that has to be combined with a desire to reform the world. That there are, he, he divides the world up into optimists and to pessimists, um, makes distinctions between like martyrdom and suicide. And he talks about why it is, how and why it is that we can feel homesick at home, why there's still this ache in us, even when we're already where we believe we're going to be. Then from there, he begins to get into the specifics of Christianity itself. And he begins to understand that all of this is actually pointing him toward this Christianity fits the the nature of things like a key in a lock. So the the, the next chapter is the, uh, is the paradoxes of Christianity. I would say that's my second favorite in the book. And he's this is where he's he's noticing everybody criticizes Christianity for different reasons, and sometimes for opposite reasons. People say Christianity is all about passive, you know, weakness and turning the other cheek, and it's just it, it produces soft people, soft men, you know. And then he also says, and yet the same people will say Christianity is responsible for all of the wars and the the crusades and everything, you know, all of the the battles of. And he's thinking, well, you know, what is it? And so he goes on with multiple multiple of these opposite reasons that Christianity gets attacked, you know, and he notices that they they contradict each other. But then he's wondering maybe Christianity is the thing and everyone's reacting to that being the reality, that being the standard by which all other things are measured. Uh, so the paradoxes of Christianity, you know, ends with that beautiful picture of the, the Christian church, you know, on almost like a, a roller coaster of it, the adventure of maintaining orthodoxy over against the narrow-minded heresies that would take it down. From there, you you've got the rest of the book is basically about okay, what if if this Christianity is true, what does it look like? How has Christianity changed the world? So you have that in the Eternal Revolution. Uh, then you've got the the romance of orthodoxy, the appeal of Christian teaching of where orthodoxy is what brings about both revolution and reform. Um, and then it, the book ends with authority and the adventurer, and it it ends with this some of the objections to Christianity in his days, for example, like against miracles and things like that. You may have seen, you know, that that's something that that Lewis obviously wrote a whole book about. Um, but then talking about the church as a, 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 a living teacher, a truth-telling thing. And so you've got this, and then he ends with joy being the gigantic secret of Christianity, that that's the, the one thing that Christianity provides that is this, this all-encompassing joy that comes about from the wonder of existence and the wonder of salvation. So all throughout that, there's all sorts of just gold nuggets, just you know things that make you stop and think things that make you ponder, you know, that ways of looking at the cross and the resurrection and the truths of Christianity in ways that you you may not have really thought of before because he's looking at it as if he's seeing it for the first time. So the reason this book and that structure works, so to speak, is because it leads you, if you're a Christian and you're reading this book, you will find that childlike astonishment at Christianity again as you press forward, as you as you plow through the, the resource. So one of the things, I mean, that was a fantastic overview, by the way. So I really appreciate you doing that. And I hope that kind of whets our appetites in some sense to dive into a book like this. It's a really well-done edition. And I think hopefully that kind of whets our our beak a little bit to want to dive into some of these themes. One of the things that you mentioned early on that I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack is you say, 
obviously Chesterton's own faith, uh, we may not agree with some of his theological positions. We may not agree with some of the ways he goes about it. What are some of those things? I think sometimes that's helpful to kind of go in knowing, hey, I might disagree with him here or by and large, you know, we come from a more Southern Baptist and kind of evangelical perspective. What are some of those tension points? But as you said, it, they don't really overshadow the beauty of what he's doing here. But what are some of those tension points that kind of help prepare readers um, as they approach something like this? Yeah, it's a great, that's a great question. With orthodoxy, you're not going to find too many of those theological differences because Chesterton at the time is, first, he wasn't a Catholic at the time. He was a part of the Church of England then. And he really wasn't answering objections or really speaking to questions of Catholicism and, 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 and Protestantism there. So orthodoxy doesn't have a whole lot from a theological perspective that an evangelical would, would, would take issue with. There are some things, uh, some of Chesterton's later works after his conversion um, are more specifically pro-Catholic on, on the surface. So, so I think reading a lot of Chesterton, you just, you have to understand he's got his own theological perspective. In reading Orthodoxy, though, I, I mean, there will be some who, you know, Chesterton does have a, you've got to understand he's, he's, he's dealing with the determinists of his day who believe that humans are animals without free will. He takes the church's free will defense as the answer to that. And then, of course, he sees, you know, Calvinism's focus on predestination and whatnot. Um, I think at one point he calls it, you know, the, you know, that um, he, he talks about, you know, William, um, Cooper, the 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 hymn writer, the famous hymn writer, um, talks about how it was mysticism that kept him sane. You know, even though he had these bouts with insanity and whatnot, that there's that deep dark hole of looking into the you know the bottomless well of predestination or what or whatnot. So a Calvinist is going to see that and say that's not really a good understanding of Calvinism or whatnot. But a even someone who leans reformed, I think, or leans toward the Calvinist perspective probably know some people who have been so deeply introspective that they really have kind of fallen into a deep, dark well of, of despair or something. It's something like that. So even where Chesterton is wrong or not exactly accurate in the way he describes an opposing position, he's actually pointing to something that actually could be a problem. I'd, I'd say if I had to, to point out one thing in this book in particular that may rattle a few people, it's when he does talk about suicide and he contrasts suicide and martyrs, martyrs dying for a cause, suicide in his mind, it's the person who's killing the entire world um, is what he's saying because they're shutting every, you know, they're shutting everyone out of the world. They're killing the world. Chesterton's not really talking about suicide in, I think, in the way that we would look at it today where we are, where we understand that, you know, there may be mental illness as part of the, the, the picture, that there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of reasons that could go to suicide that could lead to suicide that are not primarily or merely selfish only. And so I think I think if there were a place where today's reader might look at that and say, that doesn't seem like it really captures, you know, what, what's going on with a suicide, I think that would be an example. In the overall point that he's making, it makes total sense. But I I think today we would we would just want to qualify some of that in in ways differently than than the way Chesterton did back in 1908. Yeah. Well, obviously there are a lot of themes. I mean, you kind of, one of the things that I think is great about it is you have these kind of uh, memorable parts or these themes that people should watch out for as they're reading each chapter or what they have just read. And that really helps to set readers up to kind of give them a vision, especially when things get difficult, as you said, in chapters two and three, where you want to give up. Um, but you're kind of saying, hey, just kind of pay attention to these things and keep going. 
I guess one of the questions I want to ask you then is, obviously, this is a work of apologetics in many ways. So how does a work like this and kind of Chesterton's work and even his own story, his faith journey, kind of inform and shape maybe the way that we can think about apologetics today? whether it's thinking about someone who's kind of along a faith journey or even as they're, you were encountering some of the, the beauty and the joy um, and kind of the enchantment of what's around us. How do you think that a book like this or Chesterton in general helps to kind of inform the way we go about the task of apologetics? Well, I think I think what Chesterton does so brilliantly is he takes the, the criticisms towards Christianity and then he turns them on their heads. He actually makes some of the criticisms the reasons why Christianity could be true. You know, so, well, Christianity leads to, to fights over words. And, you know, Chesterton's response would be like, yes, words are one of the only things worth fighting for. Like, I mean, if someone calls your, you know, your wife a, a terrible name, you're, because of the word, you're going to want to fight, right? Like, there, because there's love at stake. Uh, you know, well, Christianity's, you know, love is free and Christianity is all about, you know, binding someone to love God or love neighbor or whatnot. It's just what we've got. No, love is always binding itself. I mean, that's why we take vows. That's why we, uh, love is always attaching itself and limiting itself. That's part of what, so he, I think throughout the book and throughout his entire method, he takes this criticism that gets lobbed at Christianity and he lobs it right back and says, nope, that's actually a reason for, not against why this is the case. And you know this because of common sense. So he's not doing a lot of appealing to scripture in particular. He's not doing a lot of appeal to other great apologists throughout time. I mean, he's not appealing really to Justin Martyr or even Aquinas or others. I mean, he does some of that in other books. He's appealing to common sense. He's saying, this is the way the world is. This thing you think discredits Christianity actually corresponds with common sense better than anything else. And that's what he's constantly doing. But if we were to have one takeaway, I think I think his method in doing that is, is very effective. I think it's one of the reasons why it worked on Lewis so well. But one of the other um, aspects of, of Chesterton is his ability to befriend people with radically opposing worldviews. I mean, he was a lifelong friend of George Bernard Shaw. I mean, you can't imagine a different kind of person. I mean, Shaw was this vegetarian, super thin person that didn't, you know... You know Chesterton, you know this massive, you know giant of a, of a man basically, but all the way down to you know Shaw's uh, naturalistic socialism and determinism and what uh, versus Chesterton and his his uh, orthodoxy and joyfulness and free will. The the I mean, and he's the same way with like H. G. Wells and all these other people. Like Chesterton is going after he's a hard going after so many of these contemporary thinkers of his day, and yet they all loved him. And he, them, like they were, they were fast friends. And there is, there's something beautiful in the way that Chesterton befriended these people whose ideas he thought were actually, the way he looked at it, he did not equate the person with their ideas. He saw the ideas as beneath the person. He could look to the person and see the beauty in that individual and see the, the, the glory in that individual and believe that the ideas that that person espoused as horrible as they might have been, were beneath the dignity of that person that he would be a fast friend toward. And there's not a lot of great examples like that today. Um, I think that's, you know, occasionally you see, you know, like a Robbie George and a Cornell West and like, and, and you're, and we sort of are, we're amazed at that because we just don't see it very often. But that's the kind of friendship that is is there that I think is a model to us as to how to 
to debate and to debate well and to not let the debate become a quarrel, but really a good argument about what truth is and why it matters. Yeah, I think that's one of the things we see kind of in contemporary culture, especially with a lot of technology, um, especially with social media, is there's not a lot of room for grace, um, but there's also just kind of a dehumanizing effect that we tend to equate people with their ideas, and they are nothing but the sum of their ideas. And I, I love what you were saying there with Chesterton is, no, that's actually, you completely flip it, is that they are so much more than just their ideas. And so you kind of, you win the person. You obviously are engaging the argument, truth matters, but you're really focusing on the person and loving them. And I talk about it with my students, especially in concept of epistemic humility. So we'll, we'll talk a lot about that in our worldview classes, specifically talking about not only is epistemic humility an understanding that you may be wrong and that you have to say, look, I'm a sinner. I don't understand things perfectly. I don't know all things, even though Twitter wants to say we're all epidemiologists, we're all lawyers in global affairs and you know foreign policy experts, uh, depending on whatever's kind of the topic of the day, is not only having humility to know your own limits, not only to know that you within those limits that you have certain areas that you may not fully understand and that you should be able to in a dialogue and encounter, but treating the person you're engaging with as more than just their ideas, treating them as a person. And it reminds me of, I think it's Ephesians six twelve, if I'm remembering right, about, you know, this battle, this warfare that we're in, the spiritual warfare isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and powers of evil. That's who we're really at battle with and at war with. Um, and so while we engage a lot of these ideas and we should with truth. We also are, there's an extreme grace and a graciousness towards other people um, because as we've talked a lot about here on the podcast, they're created in the very image of God, uh, that they have that inherent dignity, value, and worth uh, that transcends even the terrible, very dangerous ideas that they may carry. This is a wonderful work. I really encourage listeners to grab a copy of it. One of the things that we always do is we're ending our time here on the podcast um, and I'll, I'll want your, I want you to answer this kind of flavored with Chesterton, but we always talk about kind of recommended resources. So obviously this isn't the only Chesterton book. Um, he wrote multiple works over his lifetime. Um, I would assume that there are some maybe good biographies that you could recommend, but what would you recommend for folks if they want to take that, that next step? So obviously we want them to grab this copy, this version of Orthodoxy, but what are some other resources that you might recommend for folks who are either interested in Chesterton or maybe some of the maybe influence that he's had on others? Yeah, I, you know, I would, if you're looking for just a, a good little biography of Chesterton that does quote from him a lot and gives you some of the best of his work, I, I really like Defiant Joy by Kevin Belmont. It's a, he's an evangelical writer and he's, he's sort of taking Chesterton and he's kind of tells his story, but also unpacks some of the, gives you some of the greatest hits, so to speak, of his work. So, uh, that Kevin Belmont biography would be a, a good place to, to turn. Um, if you want to read more of Chesterton, the question that I always ask is, okay, what kind of Chesterton do you want to read more of? If, if you love orthodoxy and you want to read more in his apologetics, I would suggest either Heretics or The Everlasting Man, probably leaning toward Everlasting Man as the other really important work that Chesterton did in that, in that field. If you want to read poetry, I would recommend uh, that you do The Ballad of the White Horse, uh, it's just a, it's it's one of the last great epic poems in the English language. Uh, Christopher Hitchens actually w saw, thought it was it was marvelous, and you know he's certainly not a it wasn't wasn't a uh, a Christian thinker or writer, but just from the artistic standpoint. If you're looking for Chesterton's essays, which are delightful, 
one of the best one-stop shop places to go for that is a book called In Defense of Sanity. And it's a collection of some of his best essays and um, just really well put together. I'd say that's just an enjoyable an enjoyable collection. For, for Chesterton as a, as a novelist, you know, his, his, probably his best, his greatest achievement as a novelist is a book called The Man Who Was Thursday. But I, I really like the, the, the novel Man Alive, which both of those are, you know, they're not really long, but they're, they're just really, they're very enjoyable. The Man Who Was Thursday in particular is very strange, but um, is, is certainly compelling. And then you can't go wrong with picking up just a few of the short stories, you know, the Father Brown detective series and the, those the kinds of detective stories are always enjoyable and they have a philosophical point to them. They're not just there to fritter away the time. They're, they're making a philosophical point about, about life and about God and about humanity. And so those are worth the time as well. Well, for listener's sake, we'll make sure to link to all of those resources, uh, all the ones we can find. We'll make sure to link to those in the show notes for folks, um, as well as this really beautiful annotated and kind of uh, edition uh, from BNH Academic that was just released, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. Um, but Trevin, I just want, I really appreciate you um, and your ministry and, and specifically the work that you've done on this. I think it's a real it not only is it a joy to read, but also um, it's a real treat for readers to be able to have someone like yourself kind of guiding them through a work like this. So I really appreciate it. I hope you have some maybe more of these in the future to help us kind of navigate it. Maybe other Chesterton works. Uh, we'll put a plug in there for your uh, your publisher there. Maybe you can do something on like The Everlasting Man. Uh, but I just really appreciate you. And I'm glad you were able to join us today on the Digital Public Square. Well, Jason, I appreciate you too, especially all your work on technology and just equipping the church in that area and just grateful for the the ability, the time and opportunity to be able to talk about this classic book. From all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Trevin and learn more about all of his works, including the recommended resources on G.K. Chesterton that we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as stay up to date on the latest from the public square. You can sign up at jasonbacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and has been produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.